0: For me, I've always been very respectful that I'm just a passenger on on their journey themselves. There's a balance between holding the mirror up and just pissing someone off. Teamwork is not just being nice
1: to each other. Yeah, of course you should be nice. And at the same time, teamwork and collaboration is that constructive friction. It doesn't need to be pleasant. You can have some friction by having that friction in the same way that the friction between rocks to create beautiful polished stones
2: Hello and welcome to the Track Record podcast. Each and every episode, we are talking to leading performers in sport and business to find out what does it take to win. Um, So today we have Patrick and George, Um, Catherine, fire away.
3: Great to have you both here. Thank you very much for joining us. So I'll be fascinated to know you've both been incredibly successful in your respective fields, and would love to get a sense from each of you of based on your experiences. What does high performance now mean to you, either as a personal um, thing or in terms of the environment that you're in still currently and trying to create, both of you? So, George, if I can throw that on to you first, what's your definition of high performance?
1: I have evolved my view on what high performance or winning means over the years. And I come to the realization that it's something very personal and a relative thing for each individual. And I would segment it into two different types of dimensions. Dimension number one is to exceed, to be able to exceed the expectations that you set for yourself. And and this is very personal. This is relative. So my expectations for myself may be different than, than all three of you. And it's the ability to be the best version of yourself, to exceed the expectations that you set of yourself. That is what I call high performance. But over the time I I have evolved to include a second dimension which I hadn't included in the beginning and and which is to exceed also the expectations that have been set for you in your childhood. Because in your childhood we've all been set a a certain type of expectation based on where our, our upbringing was. So for example even kind of what schools we went and we want something that is at least as good for what we're able to achieve. So I think the second one is is the ability to to exceed these expectations that you had um, from your childhood. So I think it's very, very personal. It's very, very relative. And that's why when people talk about high performance in the absolute, I often pause and reflect because for a certain individual, they may have gone way beyond the expectations that they've set themselves, what the childhood actually said for them and they may have been more high performing than other
0: people that we all jazz as high performing from the outside.
3: Patrick, what what would be your definition?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective and I think yeah, a lot of the issues I deal with in terms of athletes getting out of their own way is understanding where they've come from in terms of their personal experiences and the behaviours they've learned from being a child and the interactions and relationships that, that they've had. I, th- I think i probably got a little bit more of a simplistic view of it in terms of, for me, high performance is just consistency of delivery and behaviour. Um, and I think the environment determines whether it's high performance or not, because, you know, I've worked with athletes at elite level, at sub-elite level, at, at recreational level, but but the context is the higher part of it, but the performance is actually the stuff that's within your own control. So for me, it's Irrespective of the environment and the expectation, can you still deliver what you need to deliver in terms of the process? Um, and then within that, can you control the variables within that environment? Because they're the things that determine whether or not that's successful or not. And, and you know, what's high performance for me might be low performance for somebody else, but actually that's just contextual. And it's really just about an individual's consistency and in being able to deliver in those environments and understand their own behaviours. Um, because what might be high, high performance for me is, is pretty low performance for someone else.
3: We're really interested to know, George, for you, and I think this will kind of lead into what you're referring to, Patrick. It sounded like you had that number one principle of high performance and then an event or something's required you to add that second component on. Like what, what was the learning or what was the reflection that, that got you to adding in exceeding the childhood expectations, not just what you thought you were setting yourself?
1: It's a realization that came when I started to meet more and more entrepreneurs and also to have children and, and asking myself the question, how can I be a good dad? How can I be a good parent? How can I help my children be the best version of themselves? And, and, and in doing that, I started reflecting and, and studying history and studying other founders meeting with people. And I understood that the, the most ambitious people in the world, they all had something in their childhood that drove that ambition. Something that, that they wanted maybe to prove, something that was uh, lacking, maybe a liberation from, from some kind of, of childhood trauma maybe, that they were trying to really Try to disprove others. I mean, in, in, a, in a very, in a very bad maybe example, if one reads even the biography of Elon Musk, and 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 this is an extreme case, you can see like how his childhood affected his insane ability to take these risks that most human beings will not be able to. And I'm not suggesting that we all have the same childhood, but but it was it was one realization as I was trying to understand how can I be a better parent, a better father, how I cannot do it a service my children in terms of what they're going to try to achieve. I started reflecting and and, and learning from history and other founders and and I observed that the best or the most ambitious founders always had something to prove coming from a childhood. And and, and it's actually a question I would love to ask Patrick as well. How does childhood affect different performance athletes that either you've worked with or, or observed?
0: For me, there's elements of that, like you said, that are an incredibly powerful drive, right? gets them out of bed in the morning, gets them three three times a day, that desire and passion. So take somebody like Alex, who is one of 20 seats in the world, right? Um, he's beaten out thousands of other drivers for that one seat, lost it for a year and has come back. And his drive is incredibly strong. And actually a lot of it is deep rooted in childhood. And without going into too much detail here, there's elements of that are, which are incredibly powerful and that drive and passion and work ethic comes from. But actually they're also incredibly destructive. And I think the power for Alex in stepping away from the destructive side, bringing some self-awareness to those behaviours and dealing with some of those issues from the past and release them from that destructive side. But we've tried to maintain that really personal drive that he's got in terms of competition, being successful, the beliefs he has around work ethic and the value he has about treating people with fairness and honesty and turning up in the environment and how he wants to turn up. So I think the powerful part of that is when you reach a certain level having the right support or having the self-awareness to be able to separate yourself from the destructive elements of those childhood experiences, wherever they come from, whether it's trying to fulfill some emotions of a parent or, you know, some destructive relationship in your past or, or some really negative experiences, either in sport when you were doubted or you, or you lost out. And, and those really strong experiences to be able to disconnect from the emotional side of it in terms of what the negative components of that are and just bring the good stuff with you. Without question, you know the, the the number of people that we've coached um,
2: in sport, but mostly in business, um, and certainly within the high performers, we're yet to come across one that hasn't had some kind of episode in their past that has been some kind of trigger moment that has um, formed beliefs that have resulted in a huge amount of motivation for them and for many years it tends to be a running away one and that was certainly my experience that that kind of sense of not being good enough and always needing to kind of reach a a certain bar in order to be able to to get the recognition and reward and it's just a fascinating um, element and UK Sport actually did this big survey and, and released this white paper around talent needs trauma this kind of idea without some kind of trauma actually to be a super elite performer, that there's very few that haven't had some kind of incident in the past. And so it kind of begs the question, George, as a parent, are you actually actively thinking about creating moments of trauma for your child in order to be able to release some kind of huge drive and motivation?
1: Trauma is a very loaded word, but trauma can be also be repositioned as an experience. And I would say the key thing that one can build from these learnings is how might someone, a parent like myself, for example, give the opportunity, give the chance for our children to be in the arena, to be trying stuff, to be putting themselves in the arena, trying stuff, learning, failing, uh, evolving. I'll give you an example, which, which really made me quite proud. My my oldest daughter, she's 10, and she came one day about three weeks ago and said, I decide I'm gonna run for student council. And she's an American uh, uh, type of school and, and it's a different type of student council than in, British, in the British system. And I said, fine, it's your decision, you, you do it. And then I, I observed her how in the next few weeks she tried to prepare her speech, her application for for that, and and for me that was great because she she took the decision to stand up for herself, be exposed to criticism, be exposed to failing. and I think the more we can encourage these types of experiences, the more we can get people to have these experiences outside of a bubble where they don't feel the, the, the pain of failure and the learning of failure, but also the the delight of the success and get that feedback loop of trying, learn, trying, learn. So the more we can do that, the more I believe we can, we can set up our, our, our children to, to, to develop that. So trauma is a lot of work, but I would say like if you think about it as maximizing the chances they have to get out there, compete, learn through failures and, and mistakes and, 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 and grow their muscles and the mindset, especially the mindset, the more we can, we can uh, help them be ready for for the rest of their lives.
3: I'm really intrigued to know how you apply that in terms of now the businesses that you run, because what we hear often is, you know, startup mentality. I think it's kind of baked into being part of the startup that, you know, failing learning really quickly. There's not It's not punitive. It's often you know, supported in the environment and people expect it and accept it. Once it gets to a certain size business, from our experience, when we come in, it's almost like that's a really tricky one, which philosophically people know should be still allowed, but it almost like there's, it's harder to allow people to fail the bigger you get. And particularly if, you know, you're a public company or it's, it's, there's more at stake. How have you held on to that philosophy as your companies have got bigger?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's it's just a mindset, and it's a very different mindset than 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 most companies and, and people may have. First of all, we everybody in our company has a very clear definition of you of what the growth muscles are. So we don't use words like skills or competencies. We we purposely use words like growth muscles. And and a growth muscle is what is kind of your current expectation for for your job, but also what we expect you to, to to grow, what are the muscles you expect to grow as you progress in your career? So the whole philosophy and mindset is around how you can help an individual grow and build the muscles. Then together with that comes the permission to fail. The permission to, to what, what is not acceptable is not to try hard, is not to try things, is not to learn and and iterate. So I have some values including act fast, use a scientific mindset. In acting fast, we say 70% evidence is good enough to act because there's no perfection. And with 70% evidence of the hypothesis, you just try things, learn and iterate. And then my favorite word in terms of being a leader of that approach is, is saying to people, next play. And next play is a beautiful two-word phrase that Mike Sizewski, the very famous coach of Duke University basketball team and then later of the US national basketball team coined. And it's all about this ability to forget what happened before and just focus on on the next play. Or in other words, if I have sought nine nine shots of basketball and I've failed in all nine of them, my probability to make the 10th one is exactly the same as the probability to make the first one. And as a result, I shouldn't focus on the nine past ones, but focus only on the next one. So I think that next play philosophy Together with a clarity around that, everybody has grown muscles to build. And success in an individual is not only where they are, but more importantly, their pace of growth. The pace of growth is what allows this philosophy to, to flourish.
3: And, Patrick, from your experience of, um, I guess, your evolution of experience of working with different athletes. How do you approach that with an athlete, with that idea, as you mentioned, of almost being able to separate the person from the performance to allow them some freedom almost in, in being able to perform their best?
0: Yeah, for me that always comes back to identity. How do they represent themselves? Um, and for the majority of young athletes that I work with, they represent themselves as their sport. So their performance and them as an individual or their identity is inextricably linked. And and like George mentioned earlier, that that's a process of probably creating these object relations through, you know, young years and adolescence, where love and performance and relationships all become so intertwined that they can't separate out those anymore. So for me, the biggest part of that is to be able to separate yourself from that through, I guess, constant reflection. So me constantly holding that mirror up to Alex, um, reinforcing the qualities that he's got as an individual, that. How he represents himself and the beliefs and the values that he's got are who he is, not what he does. Supporting him to stay true to those values in an environment that couldn't be any further from the values that he's got, which are all based around truth, honesty, integrity, treating with people with respect, uh, staying true to yourself, being honest, etc. Alex, five years ago, brought every session into the next session, brought every session into the next day, brought every qualifying into the next race. And, and that's when that cumulative effect of what you perceive to be a negative performance starts to build and then suddenly you're in this spiral and you're worrying about FP1 when you're sitting on the grid for a race. And that session was five sessions ago. And actually being able to separate himself out from that has really released him from the emotional aspect of a performance. Okay, he's like any sports person. He gets annoyed, he gets frustrated, but actually he very quickly moves on now to what were the issues? What can I learn? Who do I need to speak to? And that's it. He's able to move away from that. Whereas, like I said previously, there was an emotional element to that because that poor performance for him was a perception of who people thought he was in terms of a driver, but not as Alex as an individual. And that's been the most important and most powerful thing for him is to be able to separate those.
1: Patrick, I have a question on that, if I may, which is I'm a big fan of tennis and I've been observing Novak Djokovic. And one of the things I read about Djokovic is the fact that when he has let's say, a bad set or a bad game or a bad point, he's very quick to, to bounce back to this next play mentality. But part of what he has mastered over the years and particularly lately is that he doesn't deny the the failed point, but he accepts and confronts it and, his, and he puts to bed and that allows him to be able to focus in, in, in on the next play. I'm curious about First of all, what do you have observed with Alex and others, and also any any tips do you have for for the non-sportsman uh, like us in terms of how to to apply that into our everyday and business lives?
0: So I guess it's it's kind of like the evolution that we talked about. Absolutely, at the start, we you know sessions bled into other sessions, and Alex is his biggest critic, right? And that's part of his strength because he'll always question his own performance, and and the one thing he'll always say is. Nobody out there can criticise me as much as I criticise myself. Now that's a really strong and powerful tool once you know how to stop, right? And how many times can you ask yourself the same questions before you move on? We're still asking ourselves on Sunday questions about Friday. What we're doing now is we've brought that forward so much in his learning and his self-awareness around performances. We ask those questions within five minutes of session ending. He goes into engineering with those sessions, he answers those questions, and then we've already moved on by the time engineering is finished. Right. So, part of that is, I guess, him understanding that while that can be a really powerful tool, it can also be really destructive. What are the mechanisms I need to use to be able to, like you said, switch it off and move on to the next point or move on to the next session or move on to the next decision or move on to the next call? Right. Um, So, what is it about those experiences that I need to learn? How do I learn from them and how do I move on to the next? challenge and and like that next point next session um so that's that's something and i guess for me it's the difference and i'll probably say the word a lot is is the awareness of the athlete themselves and the willingness of them and i say this a lot to alex you know be comfortable being uncomfortable and being asked difficult questions so with the questioning with the awareness i think you'll come to that because you're open to the questions but actually the awareness brings you to the answer because the answer is within the athlete right I'm not giving them the answer. I'm just holding that mirror up and I want them to find that because that's where the power is for Alex. It was really interesting.
2: One of the first times I went into an organization as an athlete, a very kind of green and naive, um, uh, athlete, um, and, and went in and, and described how we would do debriefs at the end of each session. And I remember one of the um, business people saying, I, I can't believe they speak to you like that. Like, it's so disrespectful. And I, I was just so shocked by this. And I said, like, which part? Well, they're, they're telling you that they're, you're, you're not good enough and you're not performing at the right level. And, and I was like, no, like, I need this information like the, the only way I can get better is by finding out what I don't know and and so I I'm like I, I just need to draw this information out with me almost doesn't matter like I can filter for their emotions but I just needed this information it was like a, it was a real culture clash for me to be able to go into that kind of corporate environment and for them to think that that was in some way harsh or or difficult um and I guess the the, the question is in a high performance environment, which you're describing there, Patrick, how, how do you support somebody who perhaps hasn't been exposed to that environment, but has got the skills and the attributes that you want in order to be able to create a performance advantage? How can you, is there a way of being able to fast track that process?
0: I don't know if fast track is the word. I mean, I've been working with Alex six years and it's been an evolution, right? Um, and ask me full-time with one individual. And I talk about holding the mirror up a lot, which is, do you understand how you responded or reacted in that environment? Because the response and the reaction is very different. Was that a successful outcome? If it wasn't, what would you do different the next time around? And, and just really simple questions that bring awareness. So again, I use that word a lot, but how can I start to bring awareness? If, if you think they've got the skills to get there, then you're just really shuffling along that journey. And me for me, it's just shining a light and using those little experiences because they're living them. They're in that moment. And if you're there with the right kind of questions, it can be a really good learning opportunity. It's hard to reflect on them when they past that moment. And I think the difficulty is having the trust in the relationship to be able to, in those really difficult moments. And we had some really difficult moments where, you know, the perception of his performance was one, and our perception of his performance was another. And, you know, he was feeling the weight of that. And in those moments, to be able to ask him some of those really difficult questions and know that I maybe not got an answer right then, but two days later, he'd give me a ring and he'd go, like, I had a thought about what we chatted about after the race, and I think it came from here. And just giving him that space and not. Not expecting anything from him in that moment, but just coaching that question along and and hoping that it would come to fruition. Or if it didn't, then maybe reflecting on that with him to bring us back to that point. So using those coachable moments, as few and far between as they are sometimes, and being patient with that journey. Because for me, I've always been very respectful that I'm just a passenger on on their journey themselves and and there's a balance between holding the mirror up and just pissing someone off. And it's picking and choosing the moments that are most powerful. And, you know, we talk about learning needs, you know, what are the top of the learning needs? What are, the, what are the needs and emotional behaviours that we need to resolve that are going to have the biggest impact on performance right now? And what are the slow burners that we can chip away at over time? So a little bit about the efficacy of what you want to try and help support the athlete to develop. And then also a little bit about getting the balance between asking really difficult questions in difficult moments, but also allowing the athlete to, the space to deal with those moments in isolation and then maybe reflect a little bit post-experience.
3: Post and if you think about, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of really privileged relationship in some ways, that one-to-one relationship with an athlete. And, you know, you and I have both worked in the same sport for a chunk of time. What would be your reflections on the individual athlete and supporting them versus the crew boats, the team athlete set up? And, you know, in a second, George, love to ask you that kind of scalability of support really is what we're talking about, Mm. which is, you know, you've got expectations set by this environment about what performance looks like. And ultimately we have to match that in some way with the perception of those people feeling supported in order to reach that bar and you're describing it you know, beautifully with your relationship on the one-to-one, but reflecting on when we've been in crew boat situations and you're trying to think about how do you do that slightly more, you know, in a scaled way. What, what do you think the difference is?
4: I think it comes back to the fundamentals. How do you, can somebody understand where they are? Be open to understanding that, getting the mirror Tell them where they are, the
1: truth, as we said, and then, and then having clarity in terms and support in terms of where they need to go. And for us, in order to be able to do that in a scalable way, starts with the values we have as an organization. And by values, we don't mean the four words that somebody puts on, on a wall and everybody happily remembers. And at the same time, and that's a failure I've done in my previous companies, nobody acts by. Culture is culture is what you celebrate and what you don't tolerate. Culture is what Patrick, when he comes and asks George in his first day in the office, right by the, the water cooler, and asks George, oh, George, what does it take to be successful here? That's what culture is. Culture is what you do. Culture is not what you say. And so what we did quite well at Joy is that we have codified our culture and our values in terms of really operating behaviors. Behaviors that are very clear in defining what is celebrated and what is not tolerated. Actions, not, 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 not wishes, actions. And some of these are, for example, we have one value that is called being transparent, especially, especially when it's hard. Because being transparent when it's not hard is easy, right? Everybody does it. It's when it's hard that's difficult, and when 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 it matters, right? So I think the value is very very clear. The behaviors in terms of how do you create the environment to provide feedback, receive feedback, is very clear, and that's one of the values that once you practice daily, once you create cultural sock symbols in the organization to understand that we take that seriously, then people start slowly slowly practicing day by day, and over time becomes second nature. I'll give you, I'll give you a culture shock symbol example on this value around transparent when it's hard. We share every six weeks or whatever the frequency is
4: our board meeting decks transparently with the whole company. Right? Very few organizations in the world do that. And, and the reason we do that is that we want to leave and lead
1: by example around around this value. We share everything. We want you to know, we treat you like adults. We want you to know where we are, what's happening in the company. And by doing that, we're signaling to everybody else that it's hard to do this, but we are transparent. And as a result, we expect you to also celebrate this value. Similarly, we publish our salary ranges transparently within a function so people can understand. Where they are versus other people at the level, and where they can go. Again, that's another cultural shock symbol in terms of things people would not expect to to see in an organization. But by having them, and it strongly communicates how much we we'll believe in this value of transparent being hard. So coming back to the question, I think it's by by having these values like transparent when it's hard, and the other one I really love is around our value about being positively diverse. Would celebrate something that Steve Jobs said beautifully. In one of his interviews, is that teamwork is not just being nice to each other. Yeah, of course, you should be nice. And at the same time, teamwork and collaboration is that constructive friction. It doesn't need to be pleasant. You can can have some friction, but having that friction in the same way that the friction between rocks to create beautiful polished stones is what creates magical outcomes. So it's by celebrating these values that can be hard, but by just kind of practicing them day in, day out, showing up every day, doing it again and again and again, you start developing this clear understanding of where you are and taking it actually in a constructive way rather than in a defensive way. And then being able to chart your course towards the growth masters you want to build, the what a great looks like for you
2: plenty of the time, and, and my goodness, we've kind of, uh, time really has flown by in this conversation. Um, but I'm keen to just throw one um, question back at you, George. It's almost kind of using your words against you. So, so watch out. And Patrick, it's coming your way as well. It's around this kind of idea of growth muscles. Um, what's your growth muscles? What are you expanding into and, and looking to develop
4: and, and grow into over the next six, 12 months? I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that sometimes I care too much about what other people say. And if I could magically flip a switch and not care as much, I would be able to do more things that, that I like. And, and it's interesting, you know, you
1: start, you start a company and you have this passion about solving a problem, but most individuals
4: myself included for sure, will have like you know do not want to fail
1: part of part, part of 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 how you're trying to succeed is actually by trying to avoid to avoid failure, and failure is really deeply ingrained with identity and and I wish I didn't have that, not because not not because that or just of the emotional feeling, but because I think it will lead me to take bigger risk, bolder risk, create bigger impact. So I would say if there's one thing that that I would love to, to be better at is not, not to care too much about what other people say because it can allow me to take bolder, bigger risk and have the courage to create something even more meaningful.
4: What would you have to let go of in order to be able to do that? I don't know. I don't know if it's something that is intentional about what you let go or it is something about just going for it and exposing yourself i guess vulnerability is something that can lead to the courage to not care i'll be curious i'll be i'll be curious about what you think
3: it's really interesting. It kind of is circular, really. It's back to the beginning of our conversation a little bit, where when we're coaching people, they have these, you know, whether it's unhelpful, however you want to label the beliefs, you have some that serve you positively, some that can have two sides to them. And that idea of not wanting to fail will have created so much motivation for you to have done everything that you want to. And yet we get to a point where we recognize that actually there's probably a better way of doing it that gives you more flexibility. Except we often see in people this kind of inner wrestle of like, but it's got me here. And if I let go of that, is that me letting go of my superpower? I think if I, you know, What does that mean for me? So it's almost this internal thing of, you know, philosophically, I understand it could be better. But actually, emotionally, it's very difficult to let go of something that you know has been a fuel source up to this point. And we often describe it as, can you add a booster rocket on of something different that you can use that alternative fuel source? now for a different part to get you a bit further and you're not going to let go of the first one, but you're just going to add boosters and make it feel slightly different for you. And I'm kind of hearing that in what you're saying. I, I, I
1: can totally relate and I'll share a childhood story given we started with childhood and I'm sorry for taking a bit more time. And, and the story of my life is people telling me no and me hearing not yet. People telling me no and me hearing not yet, which was, the no was the fuel for me to hear not yet and, and try again, and, and that was from, you know, the universities. I got rejected by every university. I tried again. I got rejected again, and then in the end, I found my way to to study at a good and then a better university. All the way to 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 my dear wife who 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 told me no many many times until and, uh, until until she was exhausted by me, and I can relate to what you're saying because this no was my fuel to hear not yet and try again and. And maybe, maybe there's
0: a better way. Yeah. yeah, Nice.
3: Thank you for sharing that. Patrick, how about yourself?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I think I talk a lot about when people ask me about why I'm so passionate about what I do. And I always come back with the answer that I have a personal responsibility to so the weight of responsibility that I feel that somebody is on this exceptional journey and doing something that I could never do in terms of delivery of performance. And they've invited me on that journey just to support them in some way, just in periods across that whole spectrum. And just a way of responsibility, I feel that something I might miss or something that I not did at the right time may somehow impact their journey. And I think for me, at times, that's bordered on obsession. Um, And I guess if there was something that I would want to release myself from or, or work on over the next 12 months is is to know that the space that I'm working in right now, and the expertise and the value that I bring, is enough, and that my constant strive for knowledge comes from a space of me just wanting to understand what I do better, and not that it's, it's a commitment to that feeling or that obsession of not wanting to fail others. Um, and I think for me to release myself from that would be a really powerful thing, and probably would allow me to enjoy my job a little bit more. And not saying that I don't, but actually, there's times where I probably feel that weight of responsibility more than the athlete. It's been a huge privilege to be able to sit in on this conversation and
2: uh, thank you both so much for not just turning up but doing it with such intention and care and uh, deliberate nature. Um, I think it's it's been a, a real cracker. Thank
1: you. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us.